I will be reading from Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes in one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Thank you, Catherine, for reading today's passage. This Canada mug reminds me of the fall season with its large maple leaf. Are you enjoying the fall season? Have you taken a walk in the woods? I love this time of year. Robert Frost, in his famous poem, The Road Not Taken, begins with these words. Two roads diverged in the yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler, Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. His poem ends with these words, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Which road did he take? We have the awesome privilege of making all kinds of choices in life, both big ones and small ones. We, will we eat cereal or eggs for breakfast? Will we play soccer or ice hockey? Will we, we remain in this geographical area or move elsewhere? Will we pursue this career or that career? Will we study at Simon Fraser University or the University of British Columbia? We face a myriad of choices every day. But one choice is critical, and we have to choose. Staying in the place of indecision is already choosing. We must choose one path or the other. At the end of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, he presents two ways in the woods of life, as it were, which on the surface are very similar, but one of the ways is poisonous. There are two paths in the woods. One has a narrow gate, the other a wide gate. There are two trees in the woods. One bears good fruit, the other bad fruit. There are two houses in the woods. One has a solid foundation. The other is built on sand. Both ways appear to be good, but one is poison. It is not just poison ivy that leaves a little itch, but snake venom that kills. As Tim Keller says, this way destroys its travelers, poisons its eaters, and collapses on its residents. Jesus says, choose. What are the two ways? Jesus contrasts the two ways in the Sermon on the Mount, and the contrast is not what you might think it should be. He does not contrast those who pray with those who don't pray. He says, here are people who pray, but I say pray like this. Here are people who give to the poor, but I say give like this. Here are people who obey the Ten Commandments, but I say, obey like this. Both groups pray, both give to the poor and obey the commandments, but one way is poison. So, so which way is so poisonous it will kill us? Today's passage reveals the answer, and every person on earth needs to hear it. 
Let's consider the context for today's passage. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, virtues that mark his followers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who carry this character of Jesus within them, well, they are salt and light in the world. They are a preserving, seasoning influence toward Jesus and his beautiful way. They shine as lights in the world. Now, a new community is emerging around Jesus as he teaches in the synagogues and proclaims the kingdom of heaven. Jesus teaches with a new authority. Crowds are following him, and a question arises. What is Jesus' connection with the Hebrew Scriptures? The religious leaders give all authority to the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. What is Jesus' view of their Bible? Is there a difference between Jesus and them? A new section begins in chapter 5, verse 17 of Matthew. It represents the, the body of the sermon, and it runs from chapter 5, verse 17, all the way to chapter 7, verse 12. In this section, Jesus relates his teaching to the Hebrew Scriptures. So, chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus has come into the world on a mission. The law refers to the first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets includes the rest of the Old Testament, including the Psalms. For example, Jesus refers to the psalmist as a prophet in Matthew chapter 13, verse 35. In other words, Jesus' mission is not to tear down, to dismantle, destroy, or annul the Hebrew Scriptures. That's not why he came. Jesus has come to fulfill the Hebrew Scriptures. The antithesis is not between abolishing them and keeping them, but between abolishing them and fulfilling them. So, of course, what does fulfill mean? Fulfillment is one of the recurring themes in Matthew. Here are five examples. Chapter 1, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Chapter 2, verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Chapter 2, verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 2, verse 23. That what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Chapter 4, verse 14. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Do we get the point? Matthew will say the same thing at least another five times in his gospel. Jesus is fulfilling something. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 13, we read, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, that is John the Baptist. And now someone new has come, Jesus. As we read Matthew, we see the events of Jesus' life are prophetically foreshadowed in the history of Israel. For example, the exodus of the people of Israel out of Egypt, well, it foreshadows Jesus being called out of Egypt as God's son. The Red Sea deliverance, well, it foreshadows Jesus' baptism. The wilderness wanderings foreshadow Jesus' temptation. The giving of the law on Mount Sinai foreshadows the Sermon on the Mount. It all points to him, to Jesus. 
Jesus also fulfills uh, Old Testament law by his teaching. The Hebrew word for law is Torah. Torah simply means a revealed instruction. The revealed instruction of the Hebrew scriptures points to something beyond itself. In other words, the food laws, festivals, and Sabbaths point to something deeper. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see, Jesus unveils the full depth of meaning the Hebrew scriptures were intended to hold. For this reason, we have six antitheses in chapter 5, verses 21 to 48. In chapter 5, verse 21, we read, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, in verse 27 of chapter 5, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. In verse 31, It was also said, but I say to you. In verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And we see the same contrast in verse 38 and 43. The instruction, do not murder, it points forward to followers of Jesus transformed into his likeness, so much so that they will even love their enemies. The instruction, do not commit adultery, points forward to followers of Jesus transformed into his likeness, so much so that they will see other people in a whole new way. No religious leader ever went this deep. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Confucius. Jesus' good news of the kingdom of heaven does not annul the Hebrew Scriptures, but rather reveals who the Hebrew Scriptures were pointing to, Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not a new lawgiver, but rather he faithfully interprets the law. Everything, everything in the Hebrew Scriptures points to Jesus. Jesus' life his ministry, his teaching, it all clarifies God's intent, meaning, and direction of the whole uh, Old Testament. The history of Israel, the wisdom literature, uh, Proverbs, Psalms, the prophetic writings all find their fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus' words in verse 18 drive home the point of uh, verse 17 even further. Verse 18 for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. When Jesus says, for truly I say to you, he's signaling that this statement is of utmost importance. The iota is the letter of the Greek alphabet used to represent the smallest of letters in the Hebrew alphabet, yod. The dot likely refers to a tiny stroke or part of a letter used to differentiate between Hebrew letters. What is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying that he has the highest view possible of the Hebrew scriptures. He confirms their full authority in at least two ways. First, the Hebrew scriptures will endure until heaven and earth pass away. Other ways of saying this would be until the end of the age or as long as the present world order persists. Second, the Hebrew scriptures will endure until all is accomplished. Accomplished means happens or 
comes to pass. The entire Old Testament points to Jesus. It will endure until Jesus fulfills all things through his life, death, resurrection, and return. Jesus will bring everything in the Hebrew Scriptures to their full realization. With Jesus' arrival, his kingdom rule has come, and one day he will bring all things to completion. So the Hebrew Scriptures maintain their full authority, but now they are interpreted through Jesus' life, his teaching, and his mission. Quite frankly, we read the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, today because of Jesus. If it were not for Jesus, we non-Jews would not be placing great value on the Old Testament. It has rich meaning for us because it points to and is fulfilled in Jesus. So what is so different about his way? Jesus continues in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Again, we need to understand the context of Jesus' words. In the crowds, there are scribes and Pharisees. Jesus mentions them in verse 20. The scribes were professional students and teachers of the law. Today, the equivalent might be professors and students of biblical theology or systematic theology. They sought to clarify the meaning of the law and show people how to apply it to their lives. Many scribes were also Pharisees. The Pharisees were a, a reformist movement within Judaism devoted to the meticulous practice of the law with a special emphasis on tithing, on ritual purity, and Sabbath observance. They had calculated that the, the law contained 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions. They aspired to keeping them all. Their strict adherence to the Old Testament commandments was legendary. For many, they defined what it meant to live a holy life. Why would Jesus talk about them relaxing commandments? The scribes and Pharisees were trying to make the commandments more relaxed, attainable, manageable. First, they restricted the application of the commandments. For example, they restricted the biblical commandments to not murder, to the physical act of murder. They restricted the commandment to not commit adultery to the physical act. Jesus extended them to include angry thoughts, insulting words, and lustful looks. They restricted the command about neighbor love to certain people, certain people only, those of the same race and religion. Jesus said all people must be loved without limitations. Second, they extended the permissions of the law. For example, they widened the permission to divorce beyond the single ground of sexual immorality to include a husband's every whim. For Jesus, the entire Hebrew scripture was the, the expression of God's will, but it was to be taught and obeyed according to its intended and even deeper meaning. So for now, we need to know this. There is a way that makes righteousness 
humanly attainable and, and manageable. What is the way? Jesus goes on in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word exceeds, it means to go far beyond, to outstrip. The picture is of a river overflowing its banks. Jesus is saying to his disciples, if your righteousness does not go far beyond what you see in the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The zealous, meticulous, scrupulous Pharisees are not good enough. They do not measure up. As I said at my baptism, I have come to fulfill all righteousness. You can hear the disciples saying, What are you saying, Jesus? How can this righteousness be acquired? Are you talking about beating the scribes and Pharisees at their own game of legal observance? How could anyone ever surpass their righteousness? If the Pharisees are not granted entrance into the kingdom of heaven, after they have meticulously observed their 613 rules, what hope is there for anyone? And doesn't this teaching contradict what your first beatitude where you said that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit who, who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy? And Jesus would say, no. The scribes and Pharisees have missed the whole point of the scriptures. I'm talking about a whole new concept of righteousness. It was prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah when by my spirit he spoke these words in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 and 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You can hear the disciples asking, how will God write his ways on our hearts, Jesus? And Jesus would answer, listen to what my spirit said to the prophet Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel 36. So there's the key. Jesus' kingdom righteousness works from the inside out, not from the outside in. It begins not with our feeble attempts to live righteously, but with where Jesus begins this Sermon on the Mount. It begins by being poor in spirit, mourning and confessing our sinfulness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and then humbly submitting our will to Jesus' rule. 
We invite Jesus to enter our hearts with his righteousness rather than us trying to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven with our righteousness. With the submission of our hearts to Jesus comes new life. We're made alive in Jesus. The Spirit of God enters our lives. The beautiful way of Jesus begins with spiritual transformation of our hearts at the very core of our being. With the power of God's Spirit within us, we come alive. We are spiritually reborn. With the presence of God's Spirit within us, we enter a dynamic spiritual reality. It's all new. We have a new motivation inspired by the Spirit. Our minds are renewed. We begin to think like Jesus. We begin to value what Jesus values. We begin to want to behave like Jesus. Our changed hearts bring a whole new motivation to be like Jesus in our relationships with others. We have entered the kingdom of heaven. Jesus rules over our hearts. Do you see the difference? On the surface, the way of the scribes and Pharisees and the way of Jesus' disciples may appear to be the same. Both ways sing. Both ways pray. Both ways give. Both ways go to worship services. Both ways seek to keep the Ten Commandments. These two ways appear to be similar, but they are diametrically opposed. Please get this. There is a zeal manufactured by the human heart that results in an an external, self-produced, superficial self-righteousness. It is motivated by fear. If I don't do this, God's going to get me. And it leads to pride. I'm better than others because I do this. It focuses our attention on our own righteousness, not the well-being of others. And it ends in legalism and bondage, the weight of just never measuring up. It's all about trying to get leverage with God. And then there is a passion inspired, motivated, and produced by the Spirit of God, which results in heart transformation and joyful obedience. The culture of heaven comes from within. It's not imposed from the outside. It's a heart righteousness. It's inspired by love for Jesus and leads to humble obedience. It serves others. It's life. This way opens our hearts to understand Jesus' closing words to this section of the sermon when he says in chapter 7, verse 12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. The word is can be translated fulfills or or sums up. The golden rule of love fulfills or or sums up the Hebrew scriptures. This way of Jesus, it fills our hearts with passion and joy when we hear Jesus' answer to the lawyer of Matthew 22, who asks him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love for God and neighbor sum up the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus' beautiful way shows us the way to love the Father and love our neighbors like no one else. 
And he not only shows us the way, he enters our hearts so that we might follow in his steps. This is the way of Jesus. The other way never points to Jesus. It is the way of religion, and it leads to death. The way of Jesus goes far beyond the teachings of any religion. Liberal religion focuses on the God of love. It tells us we are good, that we're accepted as we are. It's permissive. Conservative religion focuses on rules and practices. It reminds us that we need to improve and measure up. Both forms of religion are dead at the core. Both depend on our own goodness. The way of Jesus is radically different from every religious path. It has nothing to do with making ourselves more righteous to enter heaven or giving ourselves an easy pass into heaven. Jesus is all about giving us new life. And this is why Jesus says so categorically and incisively in Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. As we read through the Gospel of Matthew, we will find the crowds, the sinners, the tax collectors, and prostitutes. They love Jesus. They know they're spiritually bankrupt. The religious leaders, on the other hand, we will find to be hostile toward Jesus over and over again. Why? Because Jesus is hostile toward religion. He tells them their religious zeal is not enough. He tells them their hearts are hard, proud, and impure. As followers of Jesus, do we sometimes slip back into religion? It would be easy for me to speak in the second person here and say, you do this, don't you? And you do that, don't you? And you need to change. Allow me to apply the message to myself. If I am a religious pastor, I will want you to think I have it all together and you will never measure up to my righteousness. If I'm on the way of Jesus, I will humble myself before God and you and acknowledge that apart from Jesus, I am actually spiritually bankrupt. If I'm a religious pastor, I will want you to think that I'm an amazing expositor of Matthew chapter 5, and you will never be capable of interpreting the scripture the way I do. If I'm on the way of Jesus, I will want you to love Jesus and hunger for his word. If I'm a religious pastor, I will only gather around myself those who agree with me, and I will respond in anger when people question me. If I'm on the way of Jesus, I'll be gentle and love all people, even those who treat me unjustly. If I'm a religious pastor, I will try to take uh, the specks out of your eyes and miss the planks in my own eyes. I will make you feel condemned, even worse. I will be all about my righteousness. If I'm on the way of Jesus, 
I will see my sins as planks and your sins as specks. How would you apply Jesus' words to your life? The beautiful way of Jesus is so different. Which way will we choose? As we transition to the Lord's Supper, I'm just going to post a few questions for your personal reflection.